This is a Federal News Network podcast. Intelligence agencies are starting to see some success using automation and machine learning for narrow applications. But officials say a more integrated approach is needed to transform spy tradecraft using artificial intelligence. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, intelligence agencies have been using AI forever. Where are they now at? What are they saying? Well, every one of the big intelligence agencies considers using AI to be a major priority today. And that's not surprising, right? It's become a a major priority for just about every organization on Earth. But there continues to be this issue of fragmentation and siloed efforts across agencies. And that's one of the big issues in terms of using AI to change how agencies produce intelligence. That's called tradecraft. So that was the big takeaway from the Intelligence and National Security Alliance's Spring Symposium in Arlington, Virginia, earlier this week. And even though that fragmentation can be a problem for the the big breakthroughs that agencies want to make, many officials said that these smaller grassroots projects should continue to grow and be the focus because typically a big enterprise program just doesn't work and, and solve everybody's problem. So the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency has been using machine learning for the better part of a decade now to process and share satellite imagery and other analysis. That's one of their big missions, of course. But officials say what they do lack is a good way to share successful developments, good algorithms, and best practices and good ideas across agencies. Heather Martin is NGA's Deputy Director for Plans, Programs, and Strategy in the Data and Digital Innovation Directorate. We have all these forums across the IEC where we are sharing information on this and we're working together, but it's it's almost not enough. And people are so busy just developing these things that it's really hard to kind of take a pause and come a level up and say, okay, let's get in a room. Who's got what and how can we host it in one place so that the customer and everyone else in the community can get to it really quickly? Fair question. Is anyone looking at that big picture, that cross-agency idea? That's the role of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And and for the last three years now, that office has been running something called the Augmenting Intelligence Using Machines Initiative, or AIM Initiative. And that's helping to create common standards, uh, a common ethical framework for using AI, APIs, so that Companies have a a common way to share their data and and build models and ways to speed up things like the notorious authority to operate verification process so you can get software on network faster. But officials even in that office concede that things are a little disorganized across the intelligence community when it comes to AI right now. Ryan Carpenter is a program analyst for the AIM initiative within ODNI, and he compared the last few years of activities in the intelligence community to a field of growing flowers. Basically planting a field in a way that there's AI across the community. They knew the imperative and they knew the capability of AI, but they just don't know how to employ it. So they're trying to do it in an organized fashion. And to the most part, they were pretty successful. But the way that uh, the IC has grown, the way that capabilities have grown and moved along, there needs to be a more integrated approach. The field has been planted, but it's now a disorganized field. And now we are trying to set up a way, make it a garden from a field. And that's Ryan Carpenter of ODNI. Hopefully he'll come out of his cave one of these days. We were speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Do they name any breakthroughs they'd like to see happen? in AI and in the whole tradecraft area that they thought might be useful. Yeah, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, as I mentioned earlier, has been using these machine learning tools, automation, for several years now. 
But they have a new directorate. It's called the Data and Digital Innovation Directorate. And its director is Jim McCool. And he talked about how they're trying to shift from this idea of just automating what you already do, analyzing imagery, to using this technology in, in perhaps a different way, like how Wall Street tracks changes in the, in, in the economy and in the stocks. We only have a few areas in which the teams have envisioned uh, moving away from the transactional use of the source to the streaming, uh, like on Wall Street. They don't look at the flow of data constantly. When some activity moves outside a norm or below a threshold or a circumstance is met, then that gets the attention of someone responsible. That will need to become more of our flow, workflow, than what we've done to date, which is largely automating the existing processes. And again, that's Jim McCool, director of NGA's Data and Digital Innovation Directorate, talking about how NGA wants to take a a bigger picture approach to using AI in the future. And do they feel that the agency, the intelligence community's workforce is up to this whole technology challenge? Right. Every agency struggles with the tech workforce and intelligence agencies are no different. Multiple officials say that they have issues both recruiting and retaining data scientists, those scientists that are so crucial to advancing machine learning and AI. And then they also have the the extra challenge of when they do recruit someone, it takes a long time to get them a security clearance because of that process and, and how long it takes today, many months just to get someone cleared and in the door. But Nancy Morgan, the chief data officer at ODNI, said her team is looking at ways agencies can actually retrain their existing workforce, people who are already there, because if you can't get people fast enough, then what can you do about changing the skill set of the, the people that you do have? And ODNI is also preparing to release details on a new public-private talent exchange, and that will allow intelligence officers to work in the private sector and vice versa. Morgan said there should be an announcement on that in the near future. How can we create a way for IC officers to go spend time in the private sector, think a couple months to up to a two-year tour, although I think the pilot phase will be more like a six-month phase, and in turn to have partners come in from the private sector so we learn about each other's culture. We bring the best and brightest minds to problems. Think about this differently. And that sounds like a great idea, Justin, but did she also bring up the security clearance question? Because if you go into the NSA or anywhere else in the ODNI, you may or may not be able to carry that clearance somewhere else and vice versa. Right. I think you're talking about reciprocity, that that big long-time issue with, with clearances where one agency respects the, the clearance decision of another. She didn't address that directly, but I think that's a big consideration as part of this this new pilot program. I think it's something that could affect it, although if you are trying to pull in folks from the private sector who are already cleared by perhaps the NGA to go work on an another NGA program directly for the agency, then that could solve that issue. But again, it's another thing that they'll have to work out through this pilot program. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder 
of venture-backed Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffel Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.